This podcast is from the Rand Corporation, a nonprofit institution that helps improve policy and decision making through research and analysis. For more Rand analysis, reports, and commentary on issues at the forefront of today's policy debate, visit www.rand.org. All right. Good afternoon, everyone. My name is Jamie Fugelson. I'm the Director of Congressional Relations at the Rand Corporation. And it's my pleasure to welcome you today to our briefing Lessons from a Hacker Cyber Concepts for Policymakers. I'm sure everyone here is familiar with a lot of the high profile instances that have happened recently high profile data breaches at the OPM, uh, Anthem Blue Cross, uh, and Target. Um, so, those instances like those are helping fuel the debate in Congress this year over cybersecurity bills. And they reflect the new reality that the protection of cyberspace has become a vital national interest because of its importance to almost every sector of society from defense to healthcare to financial services. Today, Lily will discuss a few issues to help advisors of policymakers like you uh, better consider proposals to boost cybersecurity across all sectors. She's gonna talk briefly about key tenets of cybersecurity and information security, why software vulnerabilities are a big deal, and the components of cyber risk beyond the threat, motivations of various cybersecurity threat actors, what they exploit, and why you should care about those, and of course, considerations for policymakers. So Lily Albon, is a researcher at RAND as well as a professor at the Pardee RAND Graduate School. She conducts technical and policy research on topics spanning cybersecurity, privacy and security in the digital age, emerging technologies, computer network oper operations, digital exhaust, and the human element. Uh, some of her recent research topics include depicting the cybersecurity landscape and the challenges defenders face, examining security risk for the health sector, describing the underground black markets for cybercrime tools and stolen data, as well as the white, gray, and black markets for zero-day exploits. And she'll talk about what all this stuff means in a little bit. Um, harnessing social engineering and open source intelligence, exploring methods for zero-day vulnerability detection, evaluating tools and technologies for greater cyber situational awareness, describing the 2020 to 2040 operation, operating environment based on technology trends, and addressing privacy and security concerns surrounding one's digital footprint. Prior to joining RAND, uh, Lily worked on, worked with, worked with and created some of the most cutting edge technologies in cryptography, network exploitation and vulnerability analysis and mathematics to help tackle some of the US government's most unique and complex problems. She won a coveted black badge at the DEF CON 21 Hacker Conference and holds degrees in mathematics from Johns Hopkins and the University of California, Berkeley. So with all that said, I'm very happy to turn it over to Lily to start today's discussion. Well, thank you so much, and thank you so much, everyone, for being here. Uh, I do appreciate your time and coming out. Um, really, the, the goal of today's brief is to provide information to kind of give you a better understanding of the challenges and problems facing you in cyber or facing us in cyber, as well as help you to kind of identify some of the problems or some of the questions that you might want to be asking of your own particular committee. I understand there's folks from uh, commerce, uh, health, transportation, national security, homeland security, all over. And while these don't uh, typically focus on specifically cybersecurity, cyber is a component of that. And so uh, today's brief will, uh, today's talk will kind of discuss uh, the information security tenants, um, elements of risk, the different threat actors, uh, components of a cyber action, and security concerns, two of the big security concerns, software vulnerabilities and the human element. And really, this is just to kind of get some of the basics, some of the terminology right, and uh, to help you start thinking about things in, in cyber. 
So one, uh, one of the first things of, about cyber is that it encompasses many different concepts, from packets to privacy and protocols, to computers and code, to emerging technologies. Cyber means so many different things, cloud computing, big data. Um, and so I encourage you as much as possible to not use the word cyber. Instead, use signals, digital, technology, uh, things that are more specific. So as much as possible, even though this is an unpacking cyber talk, I'm going to try to avoid using the word cyber, uh, although it will slip in and out uh, a few times. So one of the uh, um, key concepts in um, cyber is information security, uh, or InfoSec. If you've heard the term InfoSec, it stands for information security. And there are three tenets, confidentiality, integrity, and availability. Um, confidentiality is preventing the access or disclosure of information to unauthorized individuals or systems. Essentially asking yourself the question, uh, can only those authorized access the information or the data. Encryption is an example of confidentiality. And then there's integrity, which is preventing the modification or destruction of data or information. So uh, can I trust the information or the data? If you've ever dealt with digital signatures, that helps with the integrity. And the third component is availability, ensuring timely and reliable access and use of information, uh, data, and, and resources. So can I get to and use the information that I need to in a timely way? Many times we focus on just and emphasize just confidentiality and integrity, kind of forget about availability. We think, oh, we're going to be secure by putting, uh, for example, a computer in a locked room. Well, it's, it's confidential, you know, no one can read any of the traffic, and there's a lot of integrity in the sense that no one can modify or change any of the data, but if we can't use it, if we can't use that system, then it doesn't necessarily help, even though we might think that it's secure. So kind of to hone, uh, to, to drill these concepts in a little bit more, uh, we'll go through a few examples. Um, because while these are the three key components of information security, not all of them are critical all of the time. So for example, if you have stock prices listed on eTrade.com, what's most important here is integrity. You want to make sure that those numbers, those prices, aren't being modified. If they are, there could be larger consequences um, uh, in the economy, in the stock market. And uh, being confidential, well, you want everyone to know what the stock prices are. And certainly if availability, who lose availability, well, if you don't go to E-Trade, then you can go to Yahoo Finance, for example. Um, employee list of social security numbers, for this confidentiality is most important. Um, to, to protect that uh, information, to make sure that others, uh, that other threats or actors can't actually see that list of information. Integrity matters a, a bit. You probably don't want someone to change someone's social security number. And then availability, having something, uh, being able to reliably access it when you need, might not be that big of a deal uh, unless it's around you know, tax season or uh, around the time that you're, you're trying to pay all your employees and you need to know their social security number. And then changing weather patterns might be an example, especially if a path of a hurricane might be something where availability is the most important. Um, you know, the data might modify in a bit, so there might be some issues with integrity, and perhaps you can't always get the data when you need it, or you can't always, um, uh, the data might be, might, um, be, might be prevented from being able to access it, so there might be a confidentiality um, issue, but there's so, many, so much other data with weather patterns, and so you want to make sure that you can get to that data when you need to. Um, so now that we kind of understand those tenets of information security, let's look at the risk cycle. 
Um, risk is composed of many different elements. Uh, one of them is threats, which is any potential danger or consequence uh, to a system. Um, the vulnerabilities are a weakness to exploit, uh, that a threat might exploit. Together, these make up what's called the likelihood of an attack. Likelihood of an attack, uh, so threats and vulnerabilities together, uh, result in some sort of impact, or impact, consequence, um, exposure of an attack. And all three of these together make up risk. And I highlight this because many times uh, threat gets, um, um, gets emphasized without thinking about the vulnerabilities or the impact in the whole risk equation or when considering risk. So consider the risk of your house getting broken into. Uh, See, so we've got some threats, some, someone who might want to uh, access or might have the capabilities to break into your house. A vulnerability might be how vulnerable your front door lock is to lock picking. And the impact might be uh, kind of the, uh, the assets that you have, your electronics, your you know, jewelry, your fine art that you keep in your house. And so all those together would help you come up with what is the risk of, of someone breaking into your house. And even if your front door locks were very easily broken into, perhaps you live in a safe neighborhood and there aren't the threats, or perhaps you don't have any valuable assets, so the impact is gonna be low. So all of these components are really important to think about when you're thinking about risk. And certainly there are safeguards which mitigate the risk and those protect assets which the threats want to, um, to take advantage of. Within the risk, uh, so within these, uh, the different threats, there are different types of cyber threat actors who might want to take advantage of those vulnerabilities to create that impact, that whole risk. Um, and each of these threat actors have a different motivation. Uh, and I'll go through kind of the four different categories that we have. The first are cyber criminals who are motivated by financial intent. They want to access your data, your financial, your personal, your health information in order to monetize it, generally on black markets. Um, uh, they are responsible for, for example, um, the attacks on Home Depot and Target um, and responsible for, you know, some estimates have had it hundreds of millions of dollars worth of, uh, worth of um, uh, money stolen from, from different places. Um, hacktivists are another type of cyber threat actor. They're usually motivated by some sort of um, political cause or um, uh, some sort of um, some sort of reason or some sort of cause. So it might be embarrassing celebrities. The the um, celebrity nude selfie iCloud hack that happened last year was done by hacktivists. Or highlighting human rights. Uh, they might go after um, a company to highlight the vulnerabilities of, of a particular company or simply go after groups whose ideology they don't agree with. So, for example, uh, earlier this year, the hacktivist group Anonymous uh, went after several social media accounts of, of users uh, associated with the Islamic State. Hacktivists tend to use kind of low-level attacks, what's called, uh, often they do distributed denial of service attacks, essentially flooding a website with so much bad data that legitimate users can't get to it. A third type of cyber threat actor are state-sponsored actors, or APT, which stands for Advanced Persistent Threat. You might have heard, heard of that term. Essentially, these are funded by nation-state actors, and they're motivated by the particular goals of whatever nation-state they're working for. Um, uh, oftentimes, um, they carry out some sort of exploitation by exfiltrating data, stealing intellectual property. Um, those are kind of the lower level or the uh, not so, um, th those are kind of exploitation 
or they'll actually conduct an attack by denying, degrading, disrupting, or deceiving some sort of uh, some sort of component. So state-sponsored actors were thought are thought to be responsible for uh, the breaches of Anthem, OPM, and then certainly North Korea would be an example of going after Sony Pictures Entertainment um, last December. Uh, cyber terrorists would be the last category. Now, cyber terrorism unites two modern significant concerns, uh, attacks via technology and cyberspace and traditional terrorism. In theory, cyber terrorism consists of extremist groups or non-state actors um, going after or trying to, uh, using digital means to um, cause fear, uh, uh, install chaos, um, force a political change or force their own personal agenda. Um, to date, there really isn't cyber terrorism. Now, that doesn't mean to say that there aren't um, extremist groups or terrorists that have a connection to cyber. Certainly, they have a connection to the internet. So, for example, um, uh, for information gathering, like learning how to build a bomb, or connecting, meeting, and recruiting like-minded individu individuals, or perhaps spreading some sort of propaganda. That might be something like a website defacement. Um, uh, a little while ago, earlier this year, um, the Islamic State um, took, took responsibility for hacking into the Twitter account of US Cent Central Command, US CENTCOM, and posting a whole bunch of propaganda. But that's not really a cyber attack. Really, that's a low-level attack, kind of more akin to hacktivism. So that's why they're grayed out. Now, for each of these cyber threat actors, um, there, there are distinctions here, however, there are plenty of similarities which can make them difficult to kind of separate, and, and which is why oftentimes the media does time, tend to um, either lump them together as the same sort of actor. Uh, you, you might have heard that, um, or I, I've heard, you know, the same people that went after Target went after Anthem, which is not really the case. So there are different similarities, and I'll highlight a few of them here. So, for example, there might be the same sorts of um, uh, tools or uh, targets or tactics, techniques, and procedures used by, by similar groups. For example, uh, cyber terrorists and, ha and hacktivists might use kind of the more low-level attacks. I mentioned uh, DDoS attacks, to dis distributed denial of service attacks, where you might defa deface a website or not allow a website to be able to be used. Um, State-sponsored actors or, or uh, cyber criminals might have access to some of the same sophisticated tools, and so they might use the same what's called exploit kit in order to go after their target. Again, another reason why they often get conflated because uh, they're using the same source of tools. Um, there's the desire for attribution or recognition. Often, um, uh, cyber terrorists and hacktivists want to be known for what they've done, whereas cyber criminals and state-sponsored actors want to fly under the radar and don't necessarily want attribution. Um, there might be the use of citizen hackers uh, in all categories except for hacktivists, essentially using, um, the, using citizens or harnessing kind of the public in order to do your bidding. There are certainly countries out there who have sophisticated cyber means who do use their, um, uh, use their citizens for, uh, to carry out certain, um, certain types of attacks. And, there, and then there's just the, the case where it might just be terminology. You know, one man's freedom fighter is another man's terrorist. Um, so that's, that would be the distinction between perhaps a hacktivist and a cyber terrorist. Or a distinction between cyber terrorists and state-sponsored actors might be who happens to be in political power at that particular time.
Now, these, tar these threat actors, in order to actually carry out some sort of cyber action, there are two things that they need, access and effect. And I'll go over access right now. Um, access requires knowing about a target and then getting to the target, uh, either through a, a variety of means, uh, using a particular insider or the human element to trick someone uh, to give you access, or uh, all the way to vendor assembly, modifying some sort of component. Um, the other, uh, and, and in terms of access, there can be initial access as well as continued and persistence a persistent access. So an initial intrusion would be an initial access, but then perhaps if you're moving laterally around a network to get to a database of employee numbers, uh, social security numbers, or um, SF-86s, uh, that might mean that you need to move throughout the network in order to actually get to what you want. So access is one component of a cyber action. The other component is an effect. And this requires uh, the technical knowledge to actually do something once you're on a target, once you've actually gotten access to the end goal, as well as a well-crafted tool to pull back the data, to set up what's called a, a command and control um, communication network. So being able to talk to um, uh, someone from the outside of, of the target network. I list here a number of uh, distinctions of what an attack would be, uh, attack effects. So um, being able to deny, degrade, disrupt, or to degrade some sort of um, digital component, a system, piece of information, or data. Now a lot of the times in the news we hear about attack, a cyber attack happening. But often what's really happening is a cyber exploitation. And there's a distinction. So not all cyber actions are attacks. So an exploitation could be data exfiltration or um, uh, performing some sort of reconnaissance or surveillance or intelligence gathering. Stealing data is not an attack. Um, and actually, stealing data and exploitation kind of falls, falls under the realm of espionage, which is considered a legitimate state activity, whereas an attack is not. Something to keep in mind to really have that distinction. The Internet of Things um, increases the attack surface, that's the ability to access something, as well as uh, enable cyber-physical effects, actually being able to do something to, uh, to a surface, uh, or to do something to something, um, and then impacts, and that impacts overall uh, security costs. So the Internet of Things, have you heard of that? That, that, um, that refers to the connected world, the connected components of uh, everything being connected or having some sort of um, internet access to it. And, and this exists in all different realms. So for example, in the home, with your home thermostat or front door locks that can be controlled with a smartphone from anywhere in the world, to your fridge and toaster that have IP addresses, internet protocol addresses, so they can speak to the internet, um, to Wi-Fi enabled light bulbs, uh, your cars are essentially a set of 40 to 70 computers on a set of wheels. And then certainly in the medical domain, everything from wearables like Fitbits that monitor your health information to things like your pacemaker that's network component or insulin pumps that actually have Bluetooth enabled with them. So all of these things add greater functionality, but they also make it easier for someone to access you, access data, access systems. An interesting thing about the Internet of Things um, by the year 2020, which is only just about four years away, the number of connected devices will outnumber the number of connected people 
by a ratio of six to one. That means each one of us will have about six devices or six connected things associated with us, uh, which certainly can, uh, can make for um, different ways to access us. And if you think about it, the Internet of Things brings things into the physical realm. So we're no longer just talking about crashing computers or crashing systems. We're talking about crashing things like uh, your light bulbs or crashing cars. You may have heard recently on the news of the researchers who discovered how to remotely um, control or remotely exploit a Jeep um, and essentially um, be able to affect its physical components, affect the steering uh, or affect the acceleration and the brakes. Um, with this, um, one thing to note is that both access and effect, while these are the components that you need in order to carry out an action, they're not trivial. So those researchers, they had been working on hacking into cars for over three years. And in order to carry out this particular effect, they had first discovered how to get initial access, then they had discovered how to traverse the network, and then they discovered what all the cyber physical components were. So the steering, the brakes, the acceleration, uh, windshield wipers are another kind of cyber physical system. But they found a particular component that it took them months to reverse engineer how to both access a particular component and then carry out an effect on that particular component. And these are uh, you know, brilliant researchers who spent a lot of time and a lot of money so just carrying out a, an attack um, is not trivial, even though media and Hollywood and the movies uh, portray it sometimes as being very easy. That said, while it's important not to overhype it, once you're able to do it to one, it scales dramatically and you're able to do it to all. This is why the Transportation Authority was so adamant at pushing out patches and getting those Jeeps recalled as soon as possible. Now, the way that they sent out patches was also to send out USBs, um, USB thumb drives, which one could think from an offensive point of view is a brilliant way to carry out another attack by sending out someone, uh, you know, a malicious USB. Um, so now I want to talk about two aspects or two of the big security concerns in the cyber realm, software vulnerabilities and the human element. Um, so a little bit of terminology first. Um, a bug is just some flaw that allows code to do something unintended. It doesn't necessarily need to be, mean that it's doing something bad, just something unintended, kind of an outside of a use case. Within bugs are a class of things called vulnerabilities. And these are things that uh, they actually create some sort of security weakness. Within these are exploitable vulnerabilities. So these are the bugs that someone can take advantage of. They can actually carry out that effect on that exploitable vulnerabilities. Within this are an even smaller class of things called zero-day vulnerabilities. Have you heard of zero-day vulnerabilities? So these are vulnerabilities for which no patch or fix exists, and the vendor might not be aware of them. And of course, there are exploits that take advantage of those zero days. And why this is important is, um, if you're running on your, if you have your computer and a little up, a thing pops up saying, I have a new version of Adobe uh, or Flash that, that I need you to install, that means that Adobe has discovered that there's some sort of exploitable vulnerability that they have a patch for you to update your system with. So no one can take advantage of it. No one can use that hole to either get access or create an effect. Now, a zero-day vulnerability is something that the vendor doesn't know about. Adobe doesn't know about, but if someone else 
a, uh, a good person, a, a white hat or a black hat discovers, then they can take advantage of it for whatever reason they might want. Um, so th this is kind of our terminology. Now, why does this all matter? Well, the software we rely on contains millions of lines of code. A couple of examples, uh, web browsers like Google Chrome and Firefox have around 10 million lines of code. But it's not just in the digital computer realm. This is also in the physical realm. So cars and aircraft, both military and civilian, have anywhere from 10 to more than 20 million lines of code that they rely on. Popular operating systems throughout the years have, again, 40 to 50 uh, million lines of code. And it turns out that bugs exist in code uh, even after thorough review. About one bug per every 2,000 lines of code exists after a thorough review. So this is after someone has looked at it for vulnerabilities. One out of every 2,000 lines doesn't sound like that much, but we just saw how millions of lines of code, things that we rely on, uh, operate off of. Uh, software vulnerabilities are used to gain access and implement effects. Uh, one of the big problems and one of the, thing, one of the considerations for policy is that vendors are not held liable and there's no consequences for bad code. Now this isn't a, uh, an immediately solvable issue or immediately solvable problem of we'll just let's hold the vendors responsible. Say you have GE's Wi-Fi enabled light bulbs in your house and they overheat and they cause a fire or they cause the, um, the glass to explode and uh, you know, uh, cause, cause damage to a person. Do you hold GE responsible? Do you hold uh, whatever code they used? And the other problem is that vendor, software vendors often use libraries or they use code bases from other vendors. So it's very difficult to figure out where that vulnerability came from. And as you have millions and millions of lines of code, often code gets reused and reused and passed around, and it can be decades old and difficult to figure out who exactly is responsible for it. As I alluded to, this becomes a bigger problem with the Internet of Things. Your light bulbs, your cars, um, your uh, insulin pump that could get the wrong dosage of insulin. The future of security research is unknown. This is important because white hat hackers Folks who are trying to secure things are in, um, in a state of, of unknowingness right now of whether or not they can continue to carry out their vulnerability research. You might have heard of the Wassenaar arrangement where intrusion uh, tools or um, software in order to try to find vulnerabilities could be, held, uh, could be um, considered uh, illegal to, um, to, to possess. And if we disallow the white hat hackers, the good hackers, the good security researchers from finding these vulnerabilities and patching them, that only allows so much more for the black hat hackers, the bad guys, to find. So some solutions to, to these problems these, of software vulnerabilities. Well, we can use bug bounty programs. Uh, this is essentially where vendors will buy back um, the, uh, the, 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 the knowledge of a security vulnerability from these white hat hackers. Uh, they might buy it back in terms of money, but also in terms of honor and fame, uh, which is actually something that people really like. They like to um, uh, have their name on security bulletins. Promoting security research and allowing for people to really go out and find these vulnerabilities. Encouraging security development from the start. Um, I don't know how many here were computer science majors. 
So did you learn about secure coding as part of your curriculum? Barely. Barely, which is a great response because for the most part, security, uh, learning secure co coding is not part of your curriculum for computer science majors. So the generation of those who are creating our websites, are developing our architecture, who are creating the code that our, not only our systems but our physical things are going to rely on, uh, don't necessarily know about security. Not only that, but you know, Code Academy exists and anyone can really learn how to code and build whatever they want. Um, Kickstarter campaigns are funded for anyone to create an Internet of Things thing, uh, and you don't necessarily have to have been, in, been a programmer or a computer science major in order to learn that. So it's not as if we can just say, all right, let's learn secure, let's have secure coding implemented in, into CS computer science majors, but really everyone with a kind of a STEM focus or programming focus should be thinking about security. And it might not just be at the university level, but even uh, before that. We can develop standards, especially for cyber physical systems. That's something certainly from a policy angle. And part of that is to hold software vendors liable. How to do that? That's certainly a topic to tackle, but holding them liable. One potential solution could be to offer the, um, offer the solution to software vendors of um, making all of their source code uh, openly available and open source and so then they won't be held liable if something happens or if they decide to keep it proprietary to make them liable. That's one solution but there certainly are others out there. So that's software vulnerabilities. The other big um, concern in cybersecurity is the human weakness or the human element. Um, Attacks exploiting the human element are growing. Symantec had a report that came out earlier this year that said that five out of every six large businesses um, were targeted with spear phishing campaigns. Spear phishing is essentially a targeted uh, phishing attack. And this number is also growing for small to medium-sized businesses. Furthermore, more people are connected with technology. Um, whether or not they want to be, whether or not they're aware of it, whether or not they think about security. Um, and this leads to easier targeting, and this leads to easier access. Some solutions are training. Uh, this is something that we looked a little bit at, about um, in some of our research, although it's not always cost effective, but it can help. And then better research and development of, of kind of the human to computer interface with technology. You know, with every new revision, for example, of operating systems, the buttons change everywhere. So knowing where things are uh, can impact how secure a system is, as well, as well as kind of the alerts that pop up. The um, cartoon there on, on the top level, it basically, um, it, it portrays what hacking is in, in the media of, um, you know, overclocking the Linux Django and it's a whole bunch of mumbo jumbo and it makes it sound really complicated. But the reality is the human weakness and the human element is uh, by far the biggest thing that gets exploited. Someone will call you up pretending to be your, sysadmin, your system administrator asking you for your password and unwittingly you might give it to them. And therefore they have access, they have your credentials and then they can root around in your system. Uh, one of the reasons why uh, I'm particularly passionate about this is um, earlier um, during the introduction they mentioned that I won a black badge at DEF CON, which is the, the big hacker convention, and I won it for social engineering, um, a Fortune 10 company, uh, into having their, uh, a couple of their employees give me a whole bunch of information that they shouldn't have. 
um, all in a legal way, uh, all EFF lawyers were watching out for it. And so everything was good, but essentially I, I did a really good job of social engineering them by convincing them that I was uh, an insider and I needed some sort of information. So with all of this, a couple takeaways. Um, cyber can be used to mean many things. Uh, so aim to be more descriptive. Technology, computer, digital, signals, cloud, big data. Um, information security requires confidentiality, integrity, and availability. And each of these can be critical at different levels. Threats are only one aspect of risk. Uh, there's also vulnerabilities um, and, and the impact, as well as mitigations and safeguards. And so, uh, for example, some of the information sharing um, legislation that's, that's proposed or that's out there um, discusses really just the threats without considering also the vulnerabilities or the whole components of risk. Different threat actors have different motivations, and so we can't really lump them all together. Not every action is an attack. Stealing data is exploitation. Uh, the attack surface is exponentially increasing with newly connected devices and the Internet of Things. And then finally, um, sensationalism sells headlines. Uh, the Jeep crashed into you know, the freeway or, cra or went off into the ditch. Um, while that's true, sophisticated hacks take, much, uh, take a lot of dedicated resources, time, and effort. Now I have a couple final thoughts. Not all hacking is bad. So hacker is not a bad or a dirty word. A hacker is actually someone who can think outside the box or who has a, a different perspective of things. White hat hackers are very different than black hat hackers. And essentially enabling the white hats can help combat the, the black hats. It's not possible to be completely secure. 100% security is, is not, uh, not achievable. But what is achievable is making it difficult for the attacker in terms of time, money, resources, uh, people that they need to have on a particular um, target. And security is everyone's responsibility. Um, if you do nothing else, patch immediately. This didn't used to be the case five or ten years ago, but now patching is of utmost importance most importance. Once a vendor discovers that there's a vulnerability and they have a patch available for it, patch it. Because antivirus systems and firewalls and all the uh, outside defensive protection measures aren't going to cut it. It's really the patching that is the most important. That said, uh, having those defensive measures is really important. And things like employing multi-factor authentication. Um, so that might be, for example, when I log into Gmail, I also have a code that gets sent to my phone uh, that I can log in, that I can use in addition to my password. So that would be two factors of authentication. Uh, certainly using encryption, uh, both at rest and in transit of data, and then using password best practices. And, and finally, considering a security-first mindset shift, uh, baking it in rather than bolting it on. Uh, I list here a few resources, and I know these slides will be available online. Uh, I just list, this is a select list, this is a, not a, a full list of, of people who I, I believe have a lot of expertise in a particular topic. Um, some good blogs and news aggregators that I go to for my information, and then a few lists of, of books and, and reports that might be useful as you're kind of uh, embarking into the cyber realm. So with that, that's been my time. I, I thank you for yours, uh, and I welcome any questions. 
This presentation is provided as a public service by the RAND Corporation. Visit www.rand.org to learn more about these issues and to explore RAND's free online library of more than 10,000 policy reports and commentaries.